0: Good morning, everyone, and uh, bring you greetings from the church in North Providence, and we continue to pray for you folks and uh, are encouraged by your fellowship with us in the gospel. But before we begin this morning, let's just uh, seek our God in prayer and ask for his help. Our God and our Father, we are thankful to have this one day in seven, this respite for our souls where we can turn away from the normal and legitimate pursuits of life and seek you and to worship you and to give you that which is your due, and to seek to learn from you and your holy word. We thank you that we have your word before us. We acknowledge our weakness in both the speaking and the hearing of your word, and acknowledge we can do nothing unless you give to us help. No one receives anything unless it is granted to him from above. And so we appeal to you now, draw near to us and help us, and grant to us blessing as we open your word. We ask these things in the precious name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning, I want to talk about the subject of how do we respond when we face the open rebellion against God and his word? Uh, Maybe I could put it a different way. Um, Sometimes when we're witnessing to family or friends or strangers, we might get a violent response or we might get a flippant disregard for God or mocking answers. How do we answer that? Or maybe perhaps who some who are not Christians, who have had interactions with Christians, who have been very over the top in their handling of them, and they found it off-putting. So I want to look at that subject today. And I will just say as we start, the text that we're going to use has some variant readings. I'm not going to delve into that. But none of those differences change at any, in any way the information that, that the text brings to us, so I will not uh, hang up on that. And I want to just say, if you stay with me through this sermon, at the end of it, I'm going to share with you some very helpful advice concerning mountain lions. And that may seem a little strange, but I think you'll find it spiritually helpful when we get there. So... Our our sermon then is Fire from Heaven, taken from Luke 9, verses 51 to 56, and we'll approach it by looking at the disciples' offer, Jesus' rebuke, and the nature of Jesus' ministry or mission, and then some applications. So let's read the text together. Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 51. Now it came to pass, when the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? But he turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. So we'll look at the offer then. In the beginning, as we look at this offer, we want to see the background. And the background is that Jesus was well known in that region. He had gone throughout the whole region, healing, teaching, uh, and doing many things before them. In fact, the woman at the well was from Samaria, right? And she had gone and told others about Jesus. They had come to believe upon him. And there's no doubt that the knowledge of Jesus of Nazareth was throughout the entire region. If we were talking in in our language of today, they had no internet or anything of that sort. But we would say, if this were happening today, that the story of Jesus had gone viral. Everybody knew about it. But... So the this situation is in the background of all of this, Jesus sent messengers out before him to prepare. Now and the custom was that if a, a stranger asked for, for a place to stay, you would shelter them, give them protection and bring them in. But especially more so somebody who's well known of good report and yet when he sent the messengers out, they were rejected, right? So these Samaritans, we read it again in verses 51 to 53. They gave um, a very bad response. You know, it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for them. But verse 53, but they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. So when Jesus arrives there, they reject Jesus. They want nothing to do with him. It's not just that they're not aware because they knew who he was. He had sent people to say, we're coming, we need to be cared for. But they rejected him, and the text makes it clear, they rejected him for a single purpose because his face was set to go to Jerusalem. They were rejecting him, but they didn't understand the mission, right? Truly, they did not know who had come near to them. Think about it for a moment. Had they known the mission Jesus was on? Jesus was on a mission to purge away sins. Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem, with a, and his face was set like flint, not against the Samaritans, but in some senses we could say for the Samaritans and for everyone else. He was determined to go to his appointed uh, death upon the cross. He was on his way and he was set like Flint. They don't seem to understand that, but he was going that he might reconcile sinners to God and that they would, they, if they'd known that, they would have cheered him on his journey, but they didn't. Without a doubt, had they realized that Jesus was not spurning them, but was intent on going to put sin away as far as the east is from the west, they would have welcomed him. But they did not feed Jesus. They did not lodge him. They did not even give him a a cup of cold water. They treated the Lord Jesus with contempt. I mean, that's pretty clear from from the text. There's a a stranger visiting through, a well-known man, who sends a company to say, make ready for the, the master, and they reject him, utterly scorn Jesus, and treat him with contempt. Well, what did they fail to do? They had failed to receive the Son of God. Think about who they rejected for a moment. The King of Glory. This is the Prince of Peace that has come to them. This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Holy One of Israel, God's anointed, the Man of Sorrows, God with us. They made a very, very grave mistake. Excuse me. But let's look at the offer itself. This is just the preliminary information. So the offer itself, if we look at verse 54, and when his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? Well, that's the offer. They offer to have these evil Samaritans consumed by fire, right? Right? Well, in that offer, they have a number of things that they get right and some things that they get wrong. All right? And you might wonder, well, what in the world could they get wrong in that kind of a statement? Well, let's, let's look at it. First of all, they get right that they have love for the Lord Jesus. Think about it for a moment. Jesus is their Lord. They're following him. They're believing in him. They're trusting in him. They have come to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And their love for him in their hearts is that everyone should love the Lord Jesus. And I think they get this right, right? Every true believer, every blood-bought sinner who's been redeemed from the wrath of God ought to have such a love for Christ that they want to tell everyone they know and everyone they meet about Christ. So this love that they have, it's it's shown in their strong reaction, right? If we love somebody and they're spurned and treated with contempt... That stirs something within us. So I think that they get this aspect right because they esteem Jesus so highly. And they believe that everyone ought to esteem him the same way. So they're in their offer here that the love for Jesus is very strong. And I think they have it right. They also have zeal in their service. And again, I think they have this part of it right. The disciples were traveling with and serving the Lord Jesus Christ. And they were indignant over the offense he received. And they were ready. Think about it. They were ready to move heaven and earth in defense of the Savior. I think the zeal is right. I do. Now, they had a zeal, and zeal is not always wrong. Listen, it was written that of Jesus that zeal for thy house has consumed me. Right? Jesus wasn't wrong when he had zeal. And... uh, Paul reminded the Galatians, it is good to be zealous in a good things always. Right? So the zeal I think they have is it's good to have zeal. They're right to love the Lord Jesus. They're right to be zealous in their service. But even their zeal should be tempered. Listen for a moment at what J.C. Ryle says uh, commenting on this passage. Facts like this in the Gospels are carefully recorded for our learning. Let us see to it that we mark them well and treasure them up in our minds. It is possible to have much zeal for Christ and yet to exhibit it in most unholy and unchristian ways. It is possible to mean well and to have good intentions and yet to make most grievous mistakes in our actions. It is possible to fancy that we have the scriptures on our side and to support support our actions. I'm sorry, and to support our conduct by scriptural quotations and yet to commit serious errors. It is as clear as daylight from this and other cases related in the Bible that it is not always enough to be zealous and well-meaning. Very grave faults are frequently committed with good intentions. I think Ryle's right on. He continues, we must seek to have have knowledge as well as zeal. Zeal without knowledge is as an army without a general and a ship without a rudder. We must pray that we may understand how to make a right application of Scripture. The word is no doubt a light to our feet and a lantern to our path, but it must be the word rightly handled and properly applied. I think his point there is good. And I've personally been out in evangelistic settings with people, and at times seen the way they've handled the rejection of an unbeliever and have walked away ashamed. Like, What did you just do? What did you just say about our God and Savior with the way you responded to that person who had an evil response to the overtures of the gospel? We need to be careful that our zeal is not out of hand. But again, they were right with their zeal. And thirdly, they had an anger over sin. They were right in their anger over sin, Right? Even Jesus himself was angry over sin. Didn't he make a court of whips and drive away the money changers out of the temple, right? So Jesus was angry over sin. Didn't he groan within himself over the effects of sin? Jesus had had said such things as, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? The scriptures tell us to be angry and do not sin. So I think they got right in their response love for Jesus, zeal in their service, and anger over sin. But they also got some things wrong. The first thing I think they have wrong is pride. And I think what the first aspect of their having pride is this. Let me just read their response again. Oops. Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? Now think about this. There in the presence of the Lord Jesus, the one who spoke and the winds and the waves were still, the one who spoke and the dead are raised, from, are raised to life, right? The one who without a touch and sometimes with a touch heals those that are incurably sick and ill. This is the one who spoke in such a way that no one else ever spoke like him before. They're walking with him, and he is offended by the Samaritans, and they take it on themselves to say, Lord, can we take care of this for you? Can can we handle this for you? I mean, I think there's a bit of pride there. The Lord Jesus would have had 10,000 angels at his command in a moment if he wanted to. He could have spoken and dealt with this issue all by himself, but they step up Lord do you want us to take care of this? I think there's a little bit of a lack of humility there. But then I think their their pride is also shown in the fact that they put themselves on the same par if you will with the uh, prophet Elijah, okay? What do I mean by this? Well, let's turn with me in your Bibles for a moment to First Kings chapter, uh, sorry, 2 Kings chapter 1. And just read this briefly without a lot of comment here. So 2 Kings chapter 1, I'll try to pick it up in, in verse 3. Well, maybe we'll pick it up verse 2. Now, Azahiah, Azahiah fell through the lattice of his upper room in Samaria and was injured. So he sent messengers and said to them, Go and inquire of Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this injury. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria, and say to them, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are going to inquire of Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron? Now therefore, thus says the Lord, You shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So Elijah departed. Now, I just would point out here that there's an offense to God given in this past passage as well as the one we're looking at this morning. Verse 5, And when the messengers returned to him, he said to them, Why have you come back? So they said to him, A man came up to meet us, and he said to us, God, said to us Go return to the king who sent you, and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Baal's above, the god of Ekron. Therefore you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. Then he said to them, What kind of man was it who came up to meet you and told you these words? So they answered him, A hairy man wearing a leather belt around his waist. And he said, It is Elijah the Tishbite. Then the king sent, sent to him a captain of 50 with his 50 men. So he went up to him, and there he was, sitting on the top of a hill. And he spoke to him, Man of God, the king has said, Come down. So Elijah answered and said to the captain of fifty, If I am a man of God, then let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty men. And the fire came down from heaven and consumed them and his fifty. Then he sent to them another captain of fifty with his fifty men, and he answered and said to them, Man of God, thus said the king, Come down quickly. So Elijah answered and said to them, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty men. And the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed them and his fifty men. Again, he sent a third captain of fifty with his fifty men. And the third captain of the fifty went up and came and fell on his knees before Elijah and pleaded with him and said to him, Man of God, please let my life and the life of these fifty servants of yours be precious in your sight. Look, fire has come down from heaven and burned up the first two captains of fifties with their fifties, but let my life now be precious in your sight. And the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, Go down with him. Do not be afraid of him. We'll stop there. So I suspect that James and John have Elijah in mind here. And they have essentially said, well, do you want us to do, do what Elijah did? They kind of raised themselves up to that level. But there's a difference, of course. Elijah was on a peculiar mission from God. And Elijah did show forth mercy, or God showed mercy through Elijah with a third set of 50. But nevertheless, these two... They think that they're just going to ask God to send down fire and God is going to destroy the Samaritans. They assume their faith is strong enough, pure enough, and true enough that they could command judgment from heaven to fall upon the enemies of God. And sometimes as believers, I think we act like we think the same thing. We'll see. But secondly... Not only did they have pride, but there was a lack of compassion. They were not like Paul, who desired to be innocent of the blood of all men. They were quick to desire the destruction of the wicked and were only too willing to be the instruments to bring it to pass. This is inconsistent with the nature of our glorious God who says, and I quote, As I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked should turn from his ways and live. They are too much like Jonah, who preferred that the Ninevites be consumed and not converted. Jesus had sent them out to heal and to cast out demons. So think about this. When Jesus sent out his disciples, it's always to heal. It's always to cast out demons. It's always to be ministers of grace. And to call men to himself. But never is it recorded that Jesus sent them out two by two to destroy. It's not recorded in the scriptures. Never happened. He sent them out to heal and cast out demons. But not to give, never gave them the authority to destroy. But they also had a faulty understanding of, of the ministry of the Lord Jesus. They did not understand that he had a ministry of, of reconciliation and redemption. Right? They had compressed, think about this for a moment, they had compressed in their minds the thought of the Lord's first coming with mercy and his second coming where he will judge all the living and the dead, right? They've sort of compressed them into one time frame and now they have it all confused. They could not understand that today is the day of grace. The day of wrath is future. But they wanted it all now. They wanted grace for themselves And they wanted wrath for everyone that did not agree with them and everyone that did not bow the knee. They wanted the day of judgment now on the Samaritans. That's what they were looking for. They have it wrong. They don't understand the ministry of the Lord Jesus. push it all together. Well, thankfully, our God is patient and he's long-suffering, not willing that any should suffer. We should think carefully about that. Well, secondly, let's go to the rebuke itself. We want to go to the rebuke itself. And we'll read this again. But he turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. All right, we'll we'll stop there for a moment. We need to state at the outset the obvious, right? When Jesus rebukes a man, then the rebuke is fully warranted, fully justified, now, and Jesus' rebuke is not light or trifling. Jesus was not happy with them and strongly corrected them. But at the same time, we need to think about what it's not. This is not the same thing. Um, I'm going to step back a little bit for a second. If we think about Peter for a moment, when Peter spoke foolishly and the Lord said to him, Get behind me, Satan. He was not saying to Peter, that Satan has indwelt you. What he was saying to Peter, of course, was, Peter, you're acting like your your, uh, important priorities are in line with the devil's rather than in line with mine. You're not thinking rightly. But he wasn't saying that Peter was a demon. But then that's different from when the scriptures tell us that when Jesus spoke to Judas and said, what you do, go quickly, and then the devil entered him. That's different. So he's not saying here... Of these two disciples that they're of an evil spirit. It is not a declaration that the disciples were of the evil one. They were new creatures indwelt by the Holy Spirit. They are his disciples indwelt by his spirit. They are not sons of disobedience. It's important because we might think, well, you don't know what spirit you're of. You know That might sound really flippant, really an accusatory statement that they're of an evil spirit. That's not what he's saying here. What was it then? He's correcting them by explaining what the Spirit of God was doing. Not destroying lives, but saving. And you have to see this in the text. You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For, because the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. That's the spirit you are of, and your actions are inconsistent with that spirit. You are not acting rightly in accordance with your role in my ministry. I think that's the sense of what he's saying here. Just as the prophets of old had not fully understood what the Spirit was indicating when he moved them, neither did these men understand what the Spirit was working in their generation or in their hearts. And they're so close to the Lord Jesus. They're doing his will. They're trusting him. And yet they don't fully understand it. Their failure to grasp this is not isolated. Listen to what Paul says to the Romans and to us describing the nature and impact of the new birth. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. What is Paul saying? You've been saved. You used to present yourself to the evil one and serve evil, and now you need to actively... Pursue what is right and present your members as instruments of righteousness. Then that's the point here. That they have fallen in this one aspect that they have not thought rightly about what they're saying regarding the Samaritans. Jesus' rebuke is wholly consistent with the context. I think I touched on this already. But he's correcting his, his disciples. He's teaching them the way of God. We, if we were to look back in verse 46... I have verse 46 in front of me, I'm not sure I do. There would be a second books. No. Let me Let me turn to verse 6 here. 46. All right. Luke 9:46 Then a dispute arose among them as to which of them would be the greatest. And Jesus, perceiving the thought of their heart, took a little child and set him by him and said to them, Whoever receives this little child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me, for he who is least among you will be great. Right? So he's teaching them again. This is consistent. They have wrong thinking. He's going to pick it up and change it. Right? In verse 48, he shows where the... Greatness is found in humility, Um, and in verse 49 and 50, Jesus shows them the true nature of his adversaries. So here, Jesus shows the true nature of his earthly ministry. So uh, this is consistent with all his teaching in this section, where the, the disciples are thinking one thing, he's correcting them. They're thinking one thing, he's correcting them. Here, they act, or they offer to act, And he's correcting them. So it's a very gracious correction that the Lord gives. Well, what else do we learn? He is not destroying lives, but saving. All right? No, I'm sorry. we go back down one more second here. Um, In verse 49, John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not forbid him, for he who is not against us is on our side. So again, there's this aspect of the disciples see someone, they want to reject him because they're not doing things exactly the same way. And Jesus saying, no, he's not against us, he's with us. Let him be. All right. So that's an important part of this correction. Well, let's look for a moment then at the third point the true nature of the ministry of the Lord Jesus. And his mission is stated for us in verse 56. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. It's a simple statement. It's a very simple statement of what his mission is. So let's think about it for a moment. Let's compare. I mentioned earlier that the disciples have this compression of the first and second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's just look at them sort of side by side briefly. In his first coming, the Lord is coming. His, his coming was about mercy. He came to, save, to seek and to save the lost. In the second coming, he's coming to judge the living and the dead, right? In the first coming, he is the Prince of Peace. In his second coming, he's coming as the wrath of the Lamb, right? In his first coming, he's holy, harmless, separate from sinners and undefiled. He's a servant. When he comes again, he will be the judge and the executioner of the ungodly. In his first coming, he came to bring peace on earth and goodwill. But of the second coming, we're told, kiss the son, lest he be angry. So we have this difference in his missions. But in this first mission, it's all about mercy. But let's see the explanation of the mission of his mission. What has Jesus come to save men from? Or we could say, why didn't Jesus come to destroy men's lives? What has Jesus come to come men to save? What has Jesus come to save men from? Well, first of all, he sa- comes to save them because their lives are already destroyed. Right. If someone is outside of Christ, their life is already destroyed. Even the good that they do is evil. All that they do is vanity. It's fleeting. It's worthless. It's purposeless. All that they do stores up wrath upon wrath for themselves in the day of judgment. Jesus comes to save men's lives because they're already destroyed. I think we need to understand that. It's implied in the passage and it is crystal clear in the rest of Scripture, right? If we just go back To our passage, the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. If Jesus came to save men's lives, then men's lives need to be saved, right? If he didn't come to destroy them, it's because they're already destroyed. All right, so this is an important aspect of this. And we need to really consider this about the gospel. When we bring the gospel to people... We don't just have a nice little cherry to put on the top of a very nice little life that's all good and it just needs a bow to tie it up and just make it perfect. We come with the gospel because men's lives are a mess. Men and women, boys and girls, without Christ, are enemies of God. They're under the wrath of God. They're not in a good way. Their lives are not good, however well-appearing they may be. Their lives are not good. Without Christ, life is not good. It's implied in this verse, with or without the variant reading, by the way. If Jesus came not to destroy, but to save, then there must be a need for this. We, we could think about this from the doctrine of total depravity, right? You're well instructed here in this church. We understand that men are, are born dead in their sins. And the sin is affected every aspect of their life. But I want to just read from a quote from uh, Steve Lawson from his excellent book, Foundations of Grace, a Long Line of Godly Men. And I don't usually give book recommendations, but I really like this book. It traces the doctrines of grace from cover to cover in the scriptures. And it's very well done. But at any rate, he says this. All mankind is born spiritually dead in trespasses in sin. Fallen man is totally depraved. Sin has radically affected the total man. That is, each part of man, his mind... Emotion and will is defiled by sin. His mind is darkened, rendering him unable to see the truth about God, Christ, or himself. His heart is defiled and does not desire God, but instead loves his sin. His will is dead and cannot choose what is right. Plagued with this total inability, sinners are in bondage to sin, unable to change and become good. Being dead in sin, man does not even desire to pursue what is right. In short, unregenerate man is totally unable to do any spiritual good, can do nothing to remove his sin, and can make no contribution toward his salvation. Worse, left to himself, fallen man will never seek God or his grace. That's an excellent statement. And so that's part of why the Lord Jesus is coming To save men's lives, which are destroyed because of sin. All right. So if there must be a Savior, then there must be a reason for the Savior, right? And Jesus did not come into the world because men might need a Savior, but because there was and is a universal need for salvation. I I, I don't know. I, I... Get this sense every time we go out and try to talk to people door to door. You can almost sense the deadness of people. Some, sometimes a blank stare. Sometimes they're just unwillingness to consider anything but what makes them feel good. It's very sad. Remember that Jesus was rejected because his face was set like flint in his determination to go and be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So that's his mission uh, to... Described, but furthermore, uh, men's lives are already destroyed. It's crystal clear in the scriptures. I want to read for a moment here um, from Ephesians chapter 2. And the scripture says, And you, that's speaking to Christians, And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as the others. So Jesus' mission then to save sinners is because we are all born dead, right? Every Christian is born dead. And he's only not dead because God made him alive in Christ. Everyone else who's not made alive in Christ continues on that path of deadness, working the works of disobedience, and they are children of wrath. And being a child of wrath, is there's that day of wrath that's coming. And you were born for that day if you don't turn to Christ. So, children of wrath, as I just read. Much more than, against Romans 5, 9 and 10, much more than having been justified by his blood, We shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we are reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. What is the scripture telling us? Born into the world sinners, born into the world enemies of God. Christ came into the world. He made us alive. He reconciled us with God who took us who were enemies and brought us near to God. And that's the mission Christ is on. That's the gospel we proclaim. Everyone whose eyeballs we look into is either a believer who has embraced Christ and has had his soul saved by God or is in need of that very thing. And we must not turn away from them. Without God and without hope. Again, Ephesians 2.12. That you at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So again, the mission of the Lord Jesus is to come and to save people. Why do they need saving? Because they're outside of God's promises. And I've heard people say things. I've heard unbelievers say, you know, all things work together for good. Well, not so. The scripture says all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And it's not true universally. Those who reject Christ, those who are outside of the saving power of the blood of Christ, none of God's promises apply to them except for the promise that God will recompense them for their evil and avenge the evil they have done. But Jesus came on a mission to save people from this. So what kind of things mark one out as being dead in sins or as a child of wrath or being without God and without hope in the world? We'll look at a few. These are just some, some examples. Exodus 27, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Right? That's a pretty serious charge. Just mishandling God's name. Just speaking lightly of it, not to mention cursing and other things. Treating lightly and with contempt the name of the Lord will not be overlooked. Those who are of a perverse heart are an abomination to the Lord, but the blameless in his ways are his delight, right? The perverse heart, thinking evil, imagining evil, talking evil, evil in your speech, evil in your humor, etc., Those who are of a perverse heart are an abomination to the Lord, but the blameless in their way are his delight. Though they join forces, the wicked will not go unpunished, but the posterity of the righteous will be delivered, so those who practice wickedness. All right. Further in Proverbs, As an evildoer gives heed to false lips, a liar listens eagerly to a spiteful tongue, he who mocks the poor reproaches his maker. He who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. Think about all these things that are being spoken of lying and hating the poor and abusing people and those who rejoice at calamity. We should stop here for a moment. Rejoicing at calamity. Somebody you don't like has something really bad happen to him. What's the response of your heart? Yeah, yay, yeah. give it to him. No, I hope not. But again, the scriptures say when you're glad over calamity, it will not go unpunished. Jeremiah 20. Do not go after other gods to serve them and worship them, and do not provoke me to anger with the works of your hands, and I will not harm you. Yet you have not listened to me, says the Lord, that you might provoke me to anger with the works of your hands to your own hurt. Again, idolatry, rejecting God, not listening to him. Mark 6. Mark and again, in some ways, this is one of the hardest aspects of preaching. In Mark 6, starting in verse 11, And whoever will not receive you or hear you, when you depart from there, shake off the dust under your feet as a testimony against them. Assuredly, I will say to you, it will be more tolerable from Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than that city. And what is the scripture telling us? When somebody preaches the gospel and you reject it, When somebody witnesses to you and you reject it. When somebody calls you to repent and you reject it. God says that's going to be a bad thing for you. Right? Look a few more here. In Acts chapter 3. For Moses truly said to the fathers, The Lord your God will raise up for for you a prophet like me from among your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. And again, this passage is pretty clear. He's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. He's talking about those who come preaching the gospel of Christ, those who come preaching the apostolic teachings that Christ gave to them. It says that if you won't hear that prophet in all things, right? And then it will be bad for you, right? You'll be utterly destroyed. So it's even very evil to have, some people have this idea, I like this part of the gospel, and I like this from that book, but I don't like this section right here. It rubs me the wrong way. I'm just going to pull it out of my Bible. God says, if you don't hear him in all things, you'll be utterly destroyed. We need God's word, the whole of God's word, and we need to submit to it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it says this, Now you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do those things to your brethren. Now he's rebuking the believers in, in Corinth here, right? You do wrong, you cheat, you do these things to your brethren. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? You see, men cannot be unrighteous and think they're going to heaven. i have spoken to men sometimes who are the most ungodly characters. and say, what's going to happen to you when you die? I'm going to heaven. Really? Can you tell me about that? Because according to the scriptures, that's not the case. He goes on, do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, what is he saying? If you say that you're a Christian, if you say you're a believer, and you continue in a path of ungodliness to this extent, and it's the principal pattern of your life, you are not going to heaven. You are not what you claim. But moreover, for those outside because he's correcting Christians here, if this is your portion of life, understand you cannot go to heaven if that is the state of your heart. He goes on further and says, and such were some of you, addressing the believers, and there's hope here, and such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were cleansed, right? So that's a hopeful thing, but again, part of why the Lord came. Now, Galatians five nine five nineteen. now the works of the flesh are evident. So we want to have a sense of Okay, what is my life like? What is it characterized by? Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. And again, the Lord came to save men and women from such things. For I say to you, again, Mark 5, 20, for I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. That is to say, unless your righteousness exceeds is not something you do, but something within you because of the working of God and the granting of a new heart, then you will not see the kingdom of heaven. All right. There is another aspect of what men need to be saved from, and that's their own hearts. When Jesus came to save men, he came to save them from their own hearts. Sometimes we like to think that all the evil in the world is out there. It's, it's, you know, foreign to us. But in Mark chapter 7, it says, and he said, What comes out of a man, that defiles a man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, and foolishness. So do you want to know where all the bad stuff comes from? It comes from in here, in our hearts. I've had this conversation with my mother for a long time. and She's in a nursing home now. She used to always ask me, where does all this stuff come from? I always came back to the same thing, because i of a human heart mom. It's sin, right? What is this sin that lurks in the heart, that, must, that men must be saved from their own hearts? These are the things that happen. Think about these. What comes out of these issues from the heart? Broken marriages, broken friendships. Broken hearts, loneliness, despair, hopelessness, desperations, fights, arguments, war, and on and on it goes. Out of the hearts of men come the evil. And Jesus came to save men from that by washing away their sins, by granting them a new heart, a heart that would love him and serve a God. Do you see it? Jesus did not come to destroy life but to save it. That's why those two got it so wrong. These Samaritans said an evil thing. They rejected Christ. They want to destroy them. Jesus doesn't want to destroy them. Jesus wants to hold out yet an opportunity for them to repent. Jesus wants to show forth grace. He lived his life as an example and a pattern. He gave his life and blood as a ransom to redeem men. Gave his spirit to regenerate men and to enlighten and guide men. Gave his promise that he is both preparing a place for those who trust him and he is coming again to receive his people to himself and to bring them to heaven. Well, how do we apply this then? We need to acknowledge that sin deserves and will receive judgment from God. Sin does not receive judgment from us. in in the sense that these two are trying to bring judgment. It'll come from God. If men and women continue in sin, they will receive a just reward from a holy God. Jesus came once to save, but he is coming again to judge the living and the dead. We don't know when that day will be. We should live every day like today is the day that the trumpet is going to sound and the Lord is going to descend. Christians, I want to ask, are you living and loving consistent with the spirit who dwells within you? In other words, are you desiring the damnation of the wicked around you? Or is your heart towards them mercy and a longing for their salvation? Are you in your heart wanting to call down fire? Or are you in your heart wanting to call down the spirit of God to change their hearts and do them good? Think about the worst around you. Think about the ones that treat you the worst. What is your heart towards them? If you're a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be merciful towards them, right? Jesus said, even when he was nailed to the cross, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. He was merciful, always desiring men to turn and be saved. Jesus' saving work is not just blood and forgiveness though this is crucial in, in and essential, but he also gives commandments for us to obey and an example to follow, right? Jesus commanded us to pray for all men. Jesus commanded us to love our enemies. Jesus commanded us to do good works. He gave us the example of doing all that. Are we doing it? Are we walking as Jesus also walked? Have you been saved from your sin and the wrath to come? And We have to ask ourselves that, I. I don't know everybody here. I can't assume it. We're all saved, but we need to ask ourselves: Where do I stand with this? Sixth. Simply spurning Jesus and his overtures of grace are sufficient to bring condemnation upon you. And there's a simple statement: How bad do we need to be to go to hell? You could simply reject Jesus. Simply ignore his calls simply despise the preaching of the gospel, that's enough. Jesus did not correct his disciples for going overboard in their judgment. He didn't say they didn't deserve to be, to be burned up by fire. He didn't say that. But for not knowing the season and purpose of his mission during his earthly ministry. That's what he rebuked them for. Think about this from John 3, very familiar verses. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his, wor- his son into the world to condemn the world. Very consistent with what we just read. But that the world through him might be saved. That's our passage, right? God sent his son into the world not to condemn the world, but they should be saved. But then the passage goes on. He who believes in him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already. Some of the most overlooked words of the scriptures. Yes, God sent His only begotten Son into the world, right? But it is because He came to save the world. But those who believe not are condemned already uh, because He has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this, what is God's condemnation? And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world. Jesus is the light of men. The light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. So if you're not loving the light, if you're not running to the light, if you're not owning Jesus as your own, if you're not confessing your sins and trusting him, you are condemned already, and you need to plead with God to change that. Now, seventhly, and this came from one of the passages I read, it is possible to live near to God, have true fellowship with Jesus Christ, give heed to his word, and still be very wrong on some points. The text demands that we be humble in spiritual matters. I don't know how you can avoid that application, right? These men are living with Jesus, they're walking with Jesus, they're serving Jesus, they're loving Jesus, and they got some things really wrong, and so do we. We get things wrong sometimes, so we need to be humble about that. The Lord is righteous in all his ways, gracious in all his works, The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desires of those who fear him. He also will hear their cry and save them. The Lord Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. So God is gracious and he will draw near. Remember, the disciples were right, but they had the timing wrong. Think about this. Sin must be avenged. Every knee must and will bow before Jesus. The wicked will be destroyed, although not annihilated. Believers will reign with Jesus. Fire will be poured out upon the unrepentant. I'm going to read from Ryle again, very briefly. Let it be a settled principle in our minds that whatever men's errors may be in religion, we must never persecute them. Let us, if needful, if it be needful, argue with them, reason with them, and try to show them a more excellent way. But let us, take up the car- let us never take up the carnal weapons to promote the spread of truth. Let us never be tempted directly or indirectly to persecute any man under pretense of the glory of Christ and the good of the church. We ought never to do that. The time will come when God will judge. We leave that to God. We need to show forth the grace of God and plead with men to be reconciled to him. And then, I believe this is finally. Finally, listen to the chilling words at the end of verse 56. I kind of skipped over them before. All right, read that in context here. I have verse 56. All right. Um, After... It says that, they, that Jesus rebuked his disciples. Verse 56 says, And they went to another village. And you might be wondering, what in the world are you going to make about those words? What's the big deal about those words? Well, I think it is a, really, it is a big deal. Because Jesus is going through Samaria on his way to Jerusalem. They know about the Lord Jesus. He sends forth messengers to them. They reject Jesus. And then after the correction of his disciples, it says, and they went to another village. They rejected Jesus, but Jesus rejected them as well. He did not stay in reason with them. He went on to another place. If you, that's the danger, right? If you reject Christ, Christ may very well say, very well, that's the way you want it. Those are sober words to be. And they went to another village. He took his message of salvation His hope of eternal life. And he went to another place. And we're not told that he went back there again. So they rejected. But they were forsaken. They did not listen. And therefore nothing more was said to them. They were not interested in Jesus. So Jesus did not seek them out. They rejected Jesus. So no mighty works were performed among them. No sins were forgiven. They denied Jesus. And he went on to another village. Will you reject Jesus and have him to go, as it were, on to another village? Will you be so foolish as to reject God's free offer of salvation from your sins and deliverance from his wrath? Jesus did not come, remember, to destroy lives, but to save lives. So I plead with you, be reconciled to God while there's yet time. Today is still the day of grace. Jesus is still bidding you come. Do not Reject that while he's still bidding. And by the way, so I promised you um, a little bit about mountain lions. So if you're still interested, we'll give you a little bit of wisdom concerning mountain lions. This came from a a trip my wife and I were on out west. Not being really familiar with mountain lions, I was a little surprised when as we started our hike out into the wilderness, that there was this big sign that said, danger, mountain lions present. That got my attention. And then the sign said, gave three points of advice. Don't run, act big, and fight back. It's not necessarily intuitive, so I thought, okay, that's pretty good. If a mountain lion shows up, I've got to do everything I can not to run. I'm going to have to act big, and I'm going to have to fight back. All right, I get that. So why do I mention that here at the end of this message? Because what is good advice for dealing with mountain lions is terrible advice for dealing with God. You encountered God. It is, instead of don't run you need to run to Christ you encounter God, run to Christ instead of acting big you recognize your smallness and humble yourself before God and acknowledge your need of Him and, it's, and rather than fighting back you need to stop fighting against God lay down the weapons of your warfare and plead with God for mercy so I think mountain lions are very helpful that's the way I see it alright Well, may the Lord bless this uh, opening up of his word. Let's pray as we close, brethren.